it's always been somebody else seeing something in me that I thought was just whatever, it's not a big deal. And then putting me in a position to get around others that could help me. Okay, today's guest on the Gravity Podcast is my good friend, Lisa Sini. Lisa is known as the leading Alzheimer's and long-term care design expert in the United States and has been widely recognized for her contributions in the field. She's the founder and CEO of Mosaic Design Studio, Best Living Tech and the Infinite Living Collaboration, all focus on design products and technology that help people move from fear to freedom as they face the challenges of aging. Lisa is the author of The Future Is Here, Senior Living Reimagined, and Hive, The Simple Guide to Multi-Generational Living, How Our Family Does It and recently released her bestseller, Boom, The Baby Boomer's Guide to Leveraging Technology so that you can preserve your independent lifestyle and thrive. A sought-after speaker, Lisa, has also been featured on radio and CNN, CBS, Fox, and NBC. She also appeared on Today in America with Terry Bradshaw and is quoted frequently in the New York Times and Forbes. Okay, great. Lisa, thank you for joining me here on the Gravity Podcast. It's awesome to have you. Super happy to be here. I um, am really excited to kind of have this conversation with you. I've had the pleasure of spending some time with you at Strategic Coach and Genius Network and Abundance 360 and all this fun stuff that we're both really uh, enjoying. You've been doing longer than I have. And you know, it's it's been like really uh, a great thing to connect with you. You're here in Columbus. We have like a, a a little history going back to my early career days, but but didn't really get to know you until we engaged in uh, these these other uh, kind of masterminds or conferences or whatever else. And what I found to be so great about being in those environments is you get to really be around people that think in a similar way and that you know kind of are interested and curious about the world and what's possible and what's happening and expanding and growing and you know you've always struck me as somebody that you know just kind of loved all of it kind of took it all in was constantly thirsty and growing and uh energized by you know kind of the the bigger better future so Anyway, I'm excited to kind of go backwards and hear more about kind of your past and your your journey. Sure, sure. And, you know, it's much, the way you put it was so eloquent. It's a lot nicer to hear that I'm, you know, thirsty and growth oriented and all that versus crazy. Because mm-hmm. I think you feel a little crazy until you find your tribe. Yeah. yeah. And then once you find your tribe, you're like, okay, I want to be around more people like this. Mm-hmm. because I'm able to be more transparent and more who I really am. And then that feeds you more and you're, you even get closer and closer to who you are. Mm-hmm. With, I feel like I really knew who I was when I was very, very young. Mm-hmm. And then society kind of came in and said, no, you can't be that. You can't be that. You're this, you're that. Um, and you start shutting down or shutting off the switches in your normal personality because you're bossy. This is as a female, you know, I don't think a boy ever is told he's bossy. Mm -hmm. 
So you start shutting those switches off or you talk too much or you're always trying to help people. Yeah. Mind your own business. You know, Mm -hmm. when when you say that out loud, it sounds horrible, right? As an adult. Mm -hmm. But as a child, that's a lot of the things that you're told, or at least I was told. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is like really the whole point of this podcast. You're kind of like getting it right out of the gate because the point is, is that we oftentimes have these experiences throughout our lives. Many, for many people, that's in childhood that really do take us kind of off track from that. Like, you know, for me, that's, and, and I believe for you too, it's like a very divine, you know, kind of whole, complete being that's born into this world that's then, you know, kind of uh, moved off of that. And, uh, you know, I want to hear a little bit more about kind of those kind of moments for you. Uh, What strikes me is the one that kind of, I always remember mine was stop daydreaming. Um, You know, I I was like not paying attention in school or at home. My dad would always kind of get on me, you know, you got to stop daydreaming. And it turns out daydreaming ends up being my superpower. But um, what was it for you? Tell me like your, first of all, just tell me what was your childhood like, you know, your family dynamics, your parents, tell me a little bit about kind of that early childhood. So I grew up in Canton, Ohio, which is a fairly blue collar town, lots of huge industries. I mean, we had presidents in the United States that came out of there, um, but Timken Roller Bearing, uh, Hoover Vacuum Cleaners, Republic Steel, a lot. My dad worked for a printing company, so very ethnic. So, you know, I know how to pronounce most of the Italian and Greek names. Like, you don't realize that's a thing until you come to Columbus when I moved to Columbus, and I'm like, wait, there's a Smith and there's a, you know, you know, and people have names like Jay instead of Antonio. So it was very, um, you know, my neighborhood was Italian, Greeks, and Jews. That was the neighborhood. And we loved each other and we got along and we honored each other's, you know, um, background and foods and all the cool things. And, and with that, we got a healthy sense of being able to love each other and make fun of each other like you would with a brother or sister in not an abusive way, in an honorable way. And so, you know, I grew up in that. We were taken care of by the neighborhood. Like if we did something wrong, one of the other parents would call my mom Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So it was more of, you know, being raised by a village Mm -hmm. than it was just being raised. Almost every family had four to five kids. Um, So, you know, we could play football, do whatever we wanted (laughs) because sports wasn't a problem. And my dad worked in a factory. Uh, when my two older brothers got uh, into high school, my mom became a cook in the high school so she could hear every party that was going on and control them, make sure you know that they weren't doing much wrong. I didn't have a problem with it when I got in high school. I thought it was like a huge cool thing. My younger sisters didn't like it. So I'm one of five. Okay. Um, but when I was really young, I spent a lot of time in a playpen. Because my mom had, I have two older brothers, six and eight years older than me. And then myself and my two younger sisters are all within a year. So my mom had one baby that was in a, a you know, a carry or just a, like a little bassinet kind of thing. My little sister, I remember her crawling around. The one was sitting on top of the dining room table. And I, I vividly remember this stuff. So I had to have been around three. And I was in playpen jail. Hmm. and. Um, how 
I would occupy myself because my mom gave me crayons and, you know, coloring books and, and sometimes blank sheets of paper. And I remember somebody saying to me, maybe about three or four, she didn't draw this. Mm-hmm. And I had copied from sight something in a coloring book and had drawn it. And, and I really remember that. I remember not only the fact that it was special, but it was also, I was lying. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so a weird kind of thing, right? My yeah. uncle said that I lied. And he's like, there's no way she did this. Yeah. And my mom's like, no, she did this. There's no way to trace this. And she's really young. So I was getting complimented in the fact that, wow, this is phenomenal. And I am a, you know, an artist. But at mm-hmm. the same time, I was shut down and there was a real negative to it. Mm-hmm. That like, don't own up to your superpowers because somebody's going to say that you, know, you either don't deserve it or it's not really real. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I don't know how many people remember things that young, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I remember that and I was real tomboy and probably I was trying to keep up with my brothers, but I also love nature. Mm-hmm. And we had a huge tree, um, a tulip tree outside of our, um, house. And I would just climb up to the top of it and swing back and forth and, and watch the neighborhood. I love that 30,000 foot view. I would climb out of my bedroom window probably at five or six onto the antenna uh, tripod thing and climb up to the roof and sit up on top of the roof. And my parents never, I'm now when I think about it, it's like scary, but there was something about me being able to observe other people and see patterns, see what was going on in the neighborhood. And um, I don't know, it was, it was like, it, you've, I felt like I had control when you're mm-hmm. able to see other people and they don't see you and you're, you're at a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let me ask you just kind of jumping in there. So you mentioned kind of this art aspect. There's a, you know, kind of a creative side that's starting to, you know, emerge at a young age. And then, you know, this idea that you want to uh, kind of get up above and observe patterns, which sounds to me like, you know, in both cases, you're, you're not kind of uh, even with the tomboy element, you know, you're you're not going kind of down the middle in the mainstream. You're, you know, kind of being a unique individual at an early age. And and maybe I lived in Akron, so I understand kind of a little bit of what you're talking about with the kind of Canton atmosphere. Maybe the environment or your parents or I don't know who it is, but um, what's it like to kind of know that that's kind of who you are and maybe kind of feel on the outside at a young age? And how does that kind of influence you at that early stage in life? I, I, that's a perfect way to put it because I felt very outside. I had two older brothers that shared a room, two younger sisters that shared a room. They would actually joke, uh, not really joke, it was meant meanness, but that I was adopted. So I, I did feel very much on the outside. I mean, I was the kid that would get the books in the summer that my dad printed at the plant is school books and learn them and study them over the summer. It wasn't like work to me. It was like, oh, I just want to get more information. I love information. So I, I feel blessed that I grew up in a time frame without all these labels. I was able to be an outsider and be me without somebody trying to pocket me into saying that I was gay or I was this or mm-hmm. I was that because I probably would have been very pocketed. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the person that had, I looked like, you know, a wild child that had been raised for wolves. Mm-hmm. You know, my hair was always a mess. I always had dirt. I was always out in the woods. I think not having 
you know, I was called a tomboy, um, but it would it had really little connotation to it. You know, I wasn't a Barbie girl. So it's well, an interesting thing because, you know, I, I think I know what you mean. Like today, there's a lot of labels, but it almost seems like, you know, as I kind of witnessed my children, that there's a lot more acceptance for uniqueness today. Maybe that's just in my little bubble, um, you know, here in Bexley. But, um, you know, it, it, I don't know, maybe you were kind of like in an interesting time where it was it was um, kind of before the kind of bullying and the labeling, you know, did really yeah. emerge. You know, is that is that the case? Yeah, I think that, you know, I had a I had a deaf friend in high school. Uh, my brothers had a, a friend that had I think it was cerebral palsy. Uh, I think it was cerebral palsy. They also had someone that was a savant that was a friend. And my cousin, who was much older than me, was, you know, had a six month old. She could not speak. Um, so she was institutionalized for a lot of her life. One of my uncles, you know, was a food stylist. I, I, think, I think it was just people were allowed to be them. Um, we weren't so caught up on, I mean, yeah, we might, you know, have stupid, which now sound horrible, uh, given the context, like, you know, calling somebody something, but it wasn't meant against, again, in a bullying way. It was, mm-hmm. what do I take that's a feature about you that I can, you know, leverage to chip you, you know, kind of that poke mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, it's almost like watching Animal House <laughs> and seeing Flounder and the name yeah. that they're giving them it. versus it being a bullying thing. I got you. Okay, yeah. so that's good. So, so tell me a little bit then, um, you had said kind of earlier uh, that that you knew who you were, mm-hmm. um, but then kind of society, you know, your surroundings kind of shifted you out of that for some period of time. And, yeah. you know, yet there's also like, I'm getting this kind of, you know, sense of the environment you're in, which is, you know, a little more playful and, and you know, accepting yet, you know, kind of, you know, maybe poking at the same time. Um, so, so who were you? Who did you know you were right away? And then, you know, tell me more about kind of how you got off track from that and what, what that looked like. Sure, sure. So I think when I was younger, who I knew I was, was a very intuitive person. And uh, this is going to sound crazy, but, you know, I really felt when I was younger that I could leave my body and travel places. And well, I, it's, it doesn't sound crazy on this podcast. So okay. keep, keep going. This is the so story we want to hear. I, yeah. So I really felt that I could do that. And I'm a Christian and, you know, it doesn't misalign with anything, but I, I felt I did that. I would uh, be in class, whether it was first grade or second grade, and someone, you know, we'd have a spelling test and I'd write all the words out in the perfect order. And then she would recite what we had to spell. You know, I, I, I could do those things as I got more into school, which I love school because, you know, with five kids being at home and my mom was very strict, um, school was like play for me. It's like, hey, you set the rules and I can do it and I can be successful and I'm getting attention. So that was cool. But uh, I realized there was a very different thing for girls versus boys. You know, how people were viewed. A lot of the things started turning off and I saw kind of my superpowers being taken away. And it maybe it was me, maybe it was, you know, the school system, but I definitely 
in order to be successful, you had to shut off all that daydreaming for you. Uh, for me, it was that creativity that that took me different places and allowed me to tap into that part of my brain that really I could, whether I, whether I was tapping into the teacher's brain and, and figuring out what she was saying, I don't know how it happened, um, but, I, but I could do it, but then I lost it. And once I lost it, it was just, um, it was disheartening. You know, it was like I lost a piece of me. And I remember, you know, it was probably second or third grade. And then um, sixth grade, I ran for vice president of student council. And I won. I did the speech. You know, uh, Michael Wonder, who was my Jewish neighbor across the street, he was my manager. And uh, God love him. You know, we put up the signs, we did everything, and we really did a campaign. And I won, and I got to go away to leadership camp at Kenyon College. Mm. And I'd never been away at a camp. We were blue collar, you know. We didn't pay for, we weren't in sports and cheerleading and all that kind of stuff that, you know, Bexley and Upper Arlington and all these kids are in, my kids were in. And I went away to this camp and they really focused on connection and leadership. And I remember being singled out for and given a special award for being a leader and which was great, but it was also super upsetting because I said, what did I do? I want to repeat it. And they're like, well, there's no formula. And so I would constantly get in this kind of, you know, right brain, left brain of when I was acting in my nature, I was doing the right things, but then all of a sudden my ego would take over and say, okay, I want to do more of this. How do I do the process? How do I write it? How do I repeat this? Yeah. So, okay. So it's an interesting thing. So this idea that you lost it and, and, you know, I mean, even the fact that you had it to begin with. And, and and I don't know, like, well, first of all, what was that like to kind of like, did you feel like, well, this is cool or this is like weird or like, I don't know what to do with this or, or I don't, did you not even think about it? Cause it was just you. Yeah. But that, and, and so like, what was it like to have it? And then, you know, what was it like to lose it? I, to have it, it was just incredible. Like I was completely aware and completely present um, and in control. I felt a lot more, you know, they talk about old souls and things like that. I mm-hmm. very much think my daughter is one. Um, I felt like I was right. That mm-hmm. might be the best way to say it. Like mm-hmm. I felt right. It just felt right. And, uh, you know, when I would be able to do the, you know, spelling tests or, or those kinds of things and create the list before they were even said, it felt natural. I think part of the reason why I lost it was, I I wanted to do more of it because it fed my ego. I felt smart. Uh-huh. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so maybe almost like a misuse of it. Right, right. Yeah. Definitely felt like I was above everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, the first couple of times it happened, no, not at all. It was just yeah. like, wow, that's interesting. And then I started testing myself and I'm like, okay, it wasn't a fluke. I can do this, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then I started, I definitely felt like I felt smarter than everybody else. And, and mm-hmm. then immediately it was gone. Mm, interesting. Isn't that interesting? Okay. So, so then what? Tell, tell me, you know, kind of like, what do you do with that? And, and how do you kind of start to really find your way back? Uh, how long does that take? And, 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 and how do you do that? Yeah, I think I'm still trying to find my way back. Uh-huh. Um, part of it is, uh, you know, when I went to student council camp, um, being surrounded from by people that we're kind of vibrating on the same level. Does that mm. make sense? 
and really being able to be myself. And then you want to do more of that. It almost becomes like a, a drug. Mm-hmm. So how do I do more of this? How do I get around more people like that? And, you know, I did that all the way through high school. I didn't have a traditional college. Um, I went to five different colleges. I went to college when I was in high school because they didn't have, back then you didn't have advanced placement or AP classes and Mm -hmm. all that. But you would just go to college at night or during the day, depending on your stuff. It wasn't until, it's always been somebody else seeing something in me that I thought was just whatever, it's not a big deal. And then putting me in a position to get around others that could help me. So that happened um, almost 25, 22 years ago when I worked for Rick Slager and Pete Claceras at Carrington. They sold the company and they said, you're going to run your own business. Mm-hmm. And they saw something in me that I didn't see in me. Mm. Okay. Before you kind of tell how you got into to business, because I want to, I do want to hear that. So, so tell me, you know, <clears throat> your five different colleges, you're, you're kind of, you know, bouncing around you know, kind of what point do you start to understand what it is you want to do with your work and, and, and kind of how, how is it, you know, finding your kind of way back or this like authenticity, this, you know, kind of um, grounded creativity, whatever words you want to use for it. How, how, how was it that that starts to seep back in, in your college experience and and eventually into your work? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, part of it was I've been, this year I've been married for 30 years. I dated my husband for almost 40. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time because I, you know, I'm not 80. So <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that is a long time. 20, yeah. I have a 26 and a, we have a 26 and a 23 year old and that's a long time. So I, I was one of those people that I always saw long-term um, I didn't think short term. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to be with him. I do not need a college experience. So I'm going to go to a private art school. But I'd already been to Walsh College and in, in Kent State. And then we went down to North Carolina because they had a program down there. I was there for a year and asked them what kind of thing I could have, degree. And they said, uh, Mrs. Degree. Mm. And uh, that was an experience with the South. That and the KK. Yes. Those were two things that, you know, growing up in a, even an Italian ethnic neighborhood, I wasn't exposed to racism like that. I wasn't exposed to, you know, a woman should know her place and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And I'm an interior designer by training. I, I had very, very strong role models, females from my grandmothers and aunts, great aunts. And so I'm just like, I'm out of here. Went to mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. Then my husband wanted to get a degree. And so went to mm-hmm. Dallas and finished up. So I don't think, you know, part of the five colleges was that, it was a lack of a BS. I just had no tolerance for BS. If I didn't like something, I moved on. I'm a very, very loyal person, as you can see, the 30 years, the 40 years. But if something's not right for me, I immediately shift. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And uh, so it was a little less wacky, um, but it was, you know, in high school, I took one of those tests. I wanted to be a doctor. And I thought if the cards aren't in there for me, I'm blue collar. I should have mm-hmm. done a lot of things. And it said, you should be an interior designer, a lawyer, or, you know, something else. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, interior designer is cool. I was the top artist in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, it applies logical and other, and I'll do that. And it wasn't like I was decorating, you know, things all over the place. And that was my desire. There was no HDTV. 
but I, it seemed like it made sense to me and I could put it in a pocket. Made sense in that you could be creative, you could be an artist, you could uh, kind of merge that side uh, with making a career. Correct. Right? Yeah. So the career piece mattered to you. I mean, the, the, the Mrs. Degree is clearly not yeah. you, right? Um, and so tell me about kind of like the drive to want to merge the arts and, and the business. And, and I'm curious, I'm wondering, because I think a lot of people that are artistic, that are creative, they, they kind of uh, do merge it with business. And, and I think that, you know, you can look at business as creativity too, right? You know, to, to create anything, anything, whatever. I mean, even, you know, being a parent, you can help create, you know, how your, your, your lives, your children, I mean, to some degree, right? And, and so, you know, we can constantly be creating, but it, it does seem like there is, for me, you know, I can speak from my experience, this, this, belief or this kind of pattern we fall into that creating needs to be merged with making money or having a career. And I don't know how I feel about that always. I think, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, but I'm kind of curious to hear what your drive was to merge those two things. Yeah. I think that you have to define why you're doing something creative or where your line is. So, you know, I had a bunch of friends that were just unbelievably talented in high school and they could just draw something out of their brain. They would, you know, I mean, I'm a really good copier and I looked at them and I thought, I can't do what they do. Back then there was no computer graphics. So magazine covers and all that was done by artists, um, album covers. I can't paint something and then have somebody go, no, give me an inversion. Mentally, I don't have the strength to be able to take that. Mm-hmm. Too personal to me. But I could do design. I also, growing up blue collar, it was all about, you know, you have to have a job and you have to support yourself. And my father um, and mother were both, you know, when you're working for somebody, you give them more than you're getting and you're always going to live an honorable life. And we don't care whether you're a garbage person or a doctor or working in a factory or whatever. So you have to do that. Now, I had a scholarship to be a nurse and I turned it down because I wanted to be a doctor and I thought that that was, you know, I don't know that it checked my ego. And when I decided interior design, my parents were like, you'll never be able to make a living in your entire life. Mm. Artists don't make livings. Mm -hmm. And well, that's like another one of those, um, you know, mantras that was pretty common and, and maybe still is, you know, kind of don't daydream. And for me also, you know, artists don't make livings, you know, that, that is, that is like a thing I think that really does, you know, speak to maybe what, you know, I was saying before about why people do try to make a living as an artist. Right. That's exactly it. And so, you know, because I had a, a cousin that lived in Hell's Kitchen that was on Broadway and I had some other people that were doing theater and things, but, you know, not really making a living. Everything was scraping, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think sometimes people, God puts those folks in your life. Well, I love my parents, but puts that negativity in your life because at least for me, that's the seed that helped me to be my best me because mm-hmm. I was so stubborn. And I'm like, I'm going to prove to you, you know, I, you don't understand what I'm going to be able to do. I'm not everybody else. 
And, you know, I was best portfolio 4.0, all that kind of stuff, had a lot of job offers. And they tell me every day how proud they are of what I've done. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it is because I was trying to prove them wrong and be that child that is like, I can tie my shoes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there is the kind of, you know, messaging that, you know, is, is, you know, I, I believe really, and this is, you know, again, kind of why I like to tell these stories or hear these stories is that, you know, everything does kind of serve you and that everything is working for your benefit and is a part, in my opinion, and I know in yours too, of a larger plan, a greater intelligence that we don't always understand. And I do think that whether you believe that or not, that the embodiment of an experience is sometimes the only way to really get what it is that you don't want to do or want to do, that those experiences do really seem to be almost necessary to like really truly get it and then do something different. Right. A hundred percent. Like I think if they would have said that to me and it didn't resonate with my soul, I would have checked out. Yeah. I would have yeah. said, nah, you're right. This isn't, you know, because they were like, Hey, we're not going to help you pay for college because you've decided to, you know, throw away this scholarship. Yeah. Um, so I think, I don't, I think there's a very fine line um, between over encouraging and shooting rainbows and unicorns and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and um, really challenging somebody to be their best them or not agreeing with them and them allowing by what my parents said, it allowed me to be my own person mm-hmm. because I proved it. You know, I remember somebody in high school when, you know, I was dating my husband and they said, I said, we're going to get married in a year. And he said, you will never stay married. 50% divorce rate, blah, 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 blah. And I remember during some of our hard times, because everybody has tough times in their marriage, I thought, I am not going back to a class reunion and telling him we got divorced. Mm-hmm. And that little thing is not the reason why I stayed married, but it is the reason why I stayed married. Because if that little thing keeps me married, I really shouldn't have even been thinking about not being married. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about kind of then um, what, what kind of your early career starts to look like, you know, you, you obviously, you know, you, you told the kind of quick version of the story that you end up getting um, put into business by yourself, but, but what was it like, you know, kind of getting started and, and who were you working with and what were you doing and kind of what was your path to really ultimately going into business for yourself. Sure. So I worked all through school and that means high school as well. So I had done cleaning. I had worked retail a lot. I'd worked at McDonald's. I worked at the factory my dad worked at. I think when you work at a lot of things, to your point, you figure out what you don't want to do. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Working through school, I was down in Dallas and uh, worked for a residential design firm. And I, and I just did not like at all doing that. I, I had no tolerance for being somebody's confidant. Mm. I'm an introvert by nature. Um, I'm like, they are paying me to talk to them. Mm. Uh, and then there was a straw that broke a camel's back. Someone called a 911 call, which back then they, we didn't even have pagers. So 911, you know, it was a full on scale emergency. And it was that the 17th bathroom didn't have many blinds in it. Mm. And I'm like, 
I'm done. This does not jive with my value system. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first job that I ever had that didn't jive with my value system. Mm-hmm. That I thought, if, if you care more about your blinds than you do about your kids mm-hmm. and more about how people perceive you than about connecting with them, there, I, I don't want to work in that environment. And so after that, I really pursued working. I wanted to be a retail designer, came back to Columbus. All I wanted to do was work for the limited. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were like, absolutely not. We want project managers and here's some other people. Got a job at Continental Office Furniture. Mm-hmm. And I had been offered a big job with a dealership in Dallas and turned it down because of my ego. Mm-hmm. And I uh, hear you know, God just slaps me up the side of the head and that's the job that I have to take. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of those kind of moments where he's hitting me over the head. What was it about your ego that had you say no to that job? I thought, you know, I wanted to be this big interior designer and I thought manipulating furniture and working for a furniture dealership was the lowest level for a designer that you could be. Uh And, you know, they were they were traveling around the world with my portfolio trying to recruit new students to school. And I'm like, this is not, no. Yeah. Okay. And I think the lesson that I learned from that, not I think, I know the lesson that I learned from that was working at Continental was the greatest job that I ever had because I learned the importance of being able to manipulate how someone connects with other people, how they get to the bathroom, how much noise there is. And that's a very subtle but powerful thing in how well an organization can excel mm-hmm. and do their mission. And I was, I was too arrogant and cocky and not knowledgeable enough to realize the value of that. Mm-hmm. And so from that job, I also realized that you know whether I have a bad boss or a good boss, I can learn from it. It's not what happens to you. It's how you react to it. And so I learned so much and I was felt so blessed that I got knocked off my stool and had to, you know, take a job that I wouldn't have never, I would never have taken. And I could have made twice as much money in Dallas at the same position. And then from there, um, I got trained in healthcare and uh, was asked to come on board at Mount Carmel Health System and um, really learned about construction management and project management. And I've always had mentors. And uh, Kathy Plappert and Don Montgomery mentored me. I think he's at Nationwide now. And they really helped me. And she went off. She had a knee surgery, my boss. And before she left, she had a mentality very similar to her and Don didn't get along super well. But she had a mentality like my parents. That is like, I don't care if you hate the person. You serve them to the best ability, period. Mm -hmm. That's your job. Mm -hmm. So when she did knee surgery, she said, Lisa, I don't care what Don asks you, you do it. That is serving me. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. All mm-hmm. right. But what if he asked me to do something that you wouldn't want me to do? Nope. He's your boss right now. You do it. So he asked me to put together a standards program for furniture. And he said, I've been asking her for five years and she wouldn't do it. And he obviously didn't know anything about unique ability. <laughs> and right. Really good with systems. And in two weeks, I had an entire catalog and standard systems developed. Um, It got bid out um, and then we actually printed it and they used it for, oh gosh, almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And that was, I don't know that he saw something in me if that was what it was, or he just was so tired of not getting what he wanted. And he thought, I'll throw it to this person and there's no loss. Yeah. 
But it was uh, the first time I was in a job where I'm like, oh my gosh, this is me. I'm getting back to where my nature is. Interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing just kind of observing you. And I'm actually just thinking about kind of sitting next to you at some of our strategic coach sessions and watching how you take notes. And, and, and there's always like some doodling involved and some, you know, illustration. And you, you're, you're unique in that you're clearly uh, gifted, you know, with, with kind of your hands, you know, your, your ability to draw and, and, and be, you know, artistic, but yet you're like meticulous in your, your note taking. And, you know, as we were even talking about um, before we hopped on the air that, you know, you're the kind of person that goes to a convention and sits in every session and takes all the notes, right? You know, you have this kind of like left brain, right brain thing. What is your unique ability? Uh, you know, I really feel that it's to create clarity out of chaos, um, which fits incredibly well with design. So, you know, someone has a vision and I've got to now parcel that vision out, create clarity for it for the hundreds and hundreds of tradespeople and vendors and be able to process map it out so that we can get to the end goal. I'm very good at repeatable systems development that are flexible. But I really, um, if I had to, someone did an exercise with me once that I've always went back to. If on your tombstone, you could not have your name, but you had one word, what would it be? And mine was clarity. Mm. Like I can zoom in on a problem or find a mistake or know the answer. It, it just, it's, it's innate, you know, and I, and I don't know, I think part of it is because my brain to work properly has to have so much information. I actually went to Dr. Amon's clinic with my son in New York and we had a brain scan mm-hmm. and, um, I have a lot of difficulty with my left and my right. I uh, slur my words at certain points. Sometimes I stumble. And so when we did the brain scan, it was really interesting because we had my son and me. So we were able to see a comparison and, and know that it wasn't like some sort of weird PET scan thing that they were doing. They said that my brain was either 100% on, like on, on, like, you know, most people can't multitask. I'm either on and I have to, I'm filling out things and I'm pouring and I'm listening to three conversations or I'm completely off, like shut down, no lights in the house. Mm-hmm. And when I'm off, that's when I'm slurring my words. I will literally walk like I'm drunk, you know, don't ask me for directions or anything like that. So I asked them, I said, can I take a pill? Because I would love to be like more focused. And they're like, no, you've, you've figured out in your life, coping strategies that really allows you to be successful. And part of that is like note-taking and, and reading tons of books, going to a lot of our masterminds, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I really can see how this all makes a lot of sense um, for you and in, in ultimately landing, you landing in the work that you're doing um, because you do have the merger of all of those kind of parts of your brain, right? So you can have that ability to create the manual. You have the ability to really listen to people and hear what they care about and what's important to them in their 
design needs and spaces and and yet you can also make them beautiful you know that that does really seem like you you eventually land and use all that experience and and you know i've had my and talked openly about my you know career path and the the the, the learnings right but you you eventually take all of those individual experiences and i'm just kind of like thinking from from childhood on mm-hmm. and, you know through through the the work experience and you you land on something that is you really and and so talk a little bit about kind of doing that starting your own business and 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 really and what you're doing now you know tell me about kind of how you do that today sure sure so um so my uh two mentors, they said, Hey, you're going to start your own business. And, and I'm like, and I had a staff of four and they said, you're going to win your own jobs. We're not giving you any money, but we are going to mentor you and we'll give you access to our HR guy and our attorney. So you'll have that uh, to help write up a contract and, you know, do an HR manual. So, because I didn't want to be the company, I, I wanted to make sure that if I was going to have a business, I wasn't the business that I was going to bitch about. Like mm-hmm. as an employee, there's always something where you're like, rah, 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 you know, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. And of course, you know, it, you're always making mistakes and tweaking and hindsight's twenty twenty. but you try to be your best, not only for your associates, but for your clients and for your mission and what you're trying to achieve. So we did that. I was in the short north. And uh, rented a space uh, where the old Grandview Mercantile was, which now has been torn down. And I wrote a lease and, you know, we did everything right. And all of a sudden I get served a letter saying I have like a month to get out. And I'm like, what the heck did I do? And I didn't like dot my I's and cross my T's. And the lease said six months prior to it being up, I had to say something to them or I could be kicked out and somebody else had bought the building. And um, it was the owner of Grandview Mercantile and they moved in. And, you know, I had no ill will about that. It was about the fact that, like, you know, I didn't do my job mm-hmm. as a business owner. I was ignorant. And I don't, I think a lot of people um, think the word ignorant is a really negative word, but it's not. I was ignorant. Like, I just didn't know. You didn't know. Yeah. I didn't know enough to know. And yeah. now I know, right? Yeah. So that's great. So we uh, had to end up moving out and uh, getting a space really quick. We're doing senior living at this point. Uh, the market falls uh, right before that. And I'd be open for gallery hop and such. And uh, some hospital clients came in that we weren't doing any hospital work. And they're like, we need X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I will do anything that you want. If you want me to empty trash cans, I will empty trash cans. <laughs> like, you know, I... I'm not above doing anything. Whatever your biggest need is, as long as it fits within my value system, if you need me to scrub the floor right before your open house, I'm going to scrub the floor. Mm-hmm. You know, this is about me honoring you and being a servant. Mm-hmm. So um, I've always been good at that. So we ended up getting work with Mount Carmel. It got us through it. And then we got more senior living stuff. And then I got asked to uh, do some interior design for the Air Force. They have lodging on their bases all over the world. And so we did the design. And I remember being out in San Antonio um, and I clicked with the Lieutenant Colonel, a female. And she said, you know, 
how we renovate, this is how we renovate X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, and I was renovating senior living. And I'm like, oh God, that would never go in, in senior living. You're wasting so much money. You're wasting so much time. Uh, I, I didn't have enough sense to be sensitive and keep my mouth shut and know my place. And that's been a little bit of my superpower. And I think my dad taught me that. Mm-hmm. Um, that if I felt it was true and aligned in my heart and I didn't do it with malice, I could say it. And if somebody rejected it, that's fine. And if somebody aligned, it became magnetic. So she said, uh, I want you to stay for the next three days and um, sit in on, we have a huge bid going out to renovate all the bases all over the world with project management companies. And I said, well, let me think about it. I called back to my husband and he's like, absolutely. I said, she's not paying me. I can't afford to do this. You know, I'm going to have to pay for a hotel and all this. And he's like, you sit there and you listen. Mm-hmm. So I took his advice. And afterwards, she said, write a white paper on what you would do differently. I said, okay. So I did it. And then I left and it was done. Uh, we were over at an entrepreneur's organization conference in Japan. I had brought over my grandmother, my mom and dad, my kids. And um, I remember being in a hotel room and I had ordered one of those big clunky global phones because back then, you know, you didn't have like a cell phone that could do that mm-hmm. and got a call from the Air Force. And they said, uh, just to let you know, we took your white paper and we stopped the entire bid process. We rewrote everything and have changed it all. And now we'd like you to bid. Mm. And I'm like, what? Mm. And it was just me being without any money attached to it, just saying what I saw from a clear yeah. standpoint and not worrying about whether somebody thought I was dumb or not. I, don't, yeah. I, had, to, I had to ask somebody what a white paper was. Mm-hmm. And then we won the contract as one of four companies and renovated Air Force bases around the world. Wow. Um, yeah, until a new administration came in and that was shut down. And then, you know, we've just been doing this, doing, you know, Rio Bravo restaurants, Cooper's Hawk, that kind of thing, the Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, but we specialize in senior living. I have a heart yeah. for that. I know you do. And, and you know, your business is well-rounded and your experience is, you know, incredibly well-rounded. Um, it does really, from what I know of you, uh, that, that your heart is in this senior aspect. That seems to be kind of the area that you really feel most passionate about, connected. And I get the the luxury of driving down Broad Street uh, on a regular basis and seeing your mansion project coming to life. It looks uh, amazing. It's come a long way. And so maybe you could just take a few minutes and talk a little bit about what you're doing there. Sure, sure. So I, I, I think sometimes when you get into your career and you're doing it for a while and you're a little bit crazy where you need to be fed new information, you create things like, you know, I've written three books now, which I never thought I was ever going to write a book. And I had a, I have two people that I work with spiritually on energy and praying. And one of them said to me, um, six months prior to anything with this project, you're going to have to drop a bunch of money. And I'm like, okay. And you're not going to understand why. And it's a God thing. And I'm like, okay. And I kept on seeing things that were like really cool. Like, Hey, a new lake house. Hey, this. And you know, I knew in my soul that wasn't what it was. One day I was driving home uh, from downtown and I saw a for sale sign on the building. And I'm like, that is it. That's what I'm supposed to do. I literally bought the building uh, within, I think a week or two weeks and then told my husband about it. And uh, God love him. He's got a, you know, he, he believes in me, I think more than I believe in me. And then did a lot of praying and a lot of, writing about it. 
and realized that what I needed to do was have a physical manifestation of everything I write and speak and design about. You know, 90% of seniors don't want to go into senior living. Of the 10% that do, can't afford the private pay resort style ones that I do that are like the Four Seasons. So that leaves about 98% of the population that I'm not helping. And what kind of person am I if I say I have a heart for seniors and I'm affecting 2%? That's not walking the walk and talking the talk. So this building, which is an absolutely gorgeous, uh, has beautiful bones, uh, mansion, we are bringing up to where it needs to be technologically. Um, when it was built, it was off the charts. So when it was built and finished in 1914, women didn't have the right to vote. The Model T was just out. Um, they had indoor plumbing, telephones, uh, electric. I mean, this stuff was, it was the 30s and 40s before suburban areas got electric and plumbing in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. And I think people in cities don't realize that. Um, so this thing was like an Iron Man house, you know, or, or Bill Gates' house. So bringing it back to life and that and being able to passively educate and showcase all the technology that you can have to age in place. And I also am a huge fan of multi-generational living. So, you know, my dream is to have Architectural Digest cover it and not know that it's senior friendly mm-hmm. um, or to have a wedding there and people not even know that there's all kinds of cool things that help, can help you age in place, but it's like the best wedding and connection that that family ever had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what that's what we're looking to do. And we've got beautiful partners. And I've also invited my competition to come in and help me with this. So yeah. we've got some of the top designers from New York and Chicago and Florida and all over that are part of the process. Yeah, it's great. You know, we've both learned kind of the power of collaboration mm-hmm. through strategic coach and and other areas. And, you know, you have really built this project that way, you know, inviting your competition in, collaborating with all of your suppliers, you know, really bringing all of the learning in about technology, about kind of future forward trends and, and how we can apply that to seniors. I, I think that is really the thing that gets me most excited about what you're doing is that you've got this kind of aging demographic that's going to be living in a high tech world. You know, those are not often things that people try to merge. You know, they think, well, the high tech's got to be for the kids, but no, like let's make it work to enhance the people that probably could need it most. And, And I know you're bringing that all into the environment, which is awesome. Yeah. I think that There's a huge mistake on technology in that true great technology should be passive and intuitive. And, you know, technology is a tool. A pen is a tool and a technology. A net, uh, this coffee cup, you know, that's a technology. And we often think it has to plug in, but it can be a, a paper, you know, a toilet paper holder that's a grab bar that puts your center of gravity in the right place. Mm-hmm. And help someone that maybe has arthritis or a little frailty to get up and out safely. And the whole purpose is it should move you from fear to freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, the technology on a car to be able to help you drive without worrying. I mean, my 19-year-old nephew died in a car accident because he fell asleep at the wheel. Mm-hmm. There's technology out there that could have stopped that from happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's technology out there that can help people 
to live less fearful. And when you're living less fearful, you're more you and you're more authentic and you're able to give more. When you're in a state of fear, which I think, you know, that's what we're in right now. A lot of people are in a state of fear. And so they're responding in a negative fashion. Um, no matter what the situation is, they're, they're kind of this fight or flight, everything that is magnified. And if you can get people without in a state where they're not afraid that somebody's going to hurt them or that they're not going to be able to get up out of the chair or they're not going to fall or a conversation just so you can hear the conversation and you don't get paranoid what somebody's saying about you. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but I've had multiple times where people are laughing and in the back of my mind, my stomach's like burning because I think maybe they're making fun of me. Yeah. And they're maybe friends. Right. But, you know, sometimes you go to that. Yeah. So imagine if you can't hear well. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is really a great point and kind of a good place to kind of land, you know, that this fear that you're talking about, um, certainly as you age, you know, I can see these fears, you know, really seeping in more and more, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're, when you're the young tomboy and you're not afraid to climb up and, you know, just observe or be yourself, you know, you can kind of, you know, be in a space that's just so much more free. But, you know, as time goes on, as life feels more delicate, as the stakes are higher, as maybe your senses start to fade, you know, fear can really be an overwhelming experience. And, you know, you've kind of both demonstrated how to be courageous in your life and your work. And now you're trying to help other people bridge that gap in where they live and and how they live. And I think that's really pretty amazing work. So um, thank you for what you're doing and for coming on here and sharing your experience. I know you're doing a lot. Um, There's a lot we didn't even touch on. You've got other businesses and you're speaking and you mentioned your books and, 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 and the mansion project. Tell me, uh, kind of, or tell our audience, you know, where can they find more out about you and any other kind of final thoughts you want to share with the audience? I appreciate that. Well, you can find me, there are other Lisa Cini's out there and one's a cheerleader, I think, for the Dallas Cowboys. So, you know, if you want to think I look like that, that's great. But you can find me um, at lisamcini.com and then all the other links will be there. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, and all those things. I think one of the things that I would leave everyone with is that, you know, we are meant to be in community and to connect with each other. And, you know, if you have parents or aunts and uncles or brothers and sisters, not just friends, um, try to connect with them. But more importantly, try to meet them where they're at. Everybody has a different kind of level of how they like to connect and what the tools are. And I would challenge you to try and figure out what that tool is. You know, um, you might be more comfortable with texting, but your grandmother or your mother might want to talk on the phone. Yeah. If you can sacrifice yourself a little bit and get yourself out of your comfort zone, so much benefit will come from it in the, in the conversations that you can have. Just if you can take yourself out of where you're at and meet other people where they're at. Mm, that is a great, great lesson. And certainly as we kind of all think about our parents and loved ones and, and anybody that's, you know, going in or, 
or towards that time, you know, to to go towards them uh, and and kind of sacrifice your own, get out of your own way a little bit, and and you know, kind of be a little selfless and think about how you can go towards somebody is a really great message. Lisa, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it and enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.